0: Welcome to Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borovitch. In the previous episode, I spoke with Meg Barron, Vice President of Digital Health Strategy at the American Medical Association. AMA represents the voices of over a quarter of a million physicians and is the largest and only national association that convenes 190 plus state and specialty medical societies and other critical stakeholders. Today, I speak with Nate Bayer. Managing Director and Partner of BCG Healthcare. We dive into many topics around digital therapeutics, but what I love about this conversation is that we get a bird's eye view across BCG's customer base. But before we dive in, I was introduced to Nate a few years back by one of the trailblazing entrepreneurs in the DTX space. As an avid listener of this podcast and also an intran entrepreneur himself, Nate and I had many common points of discussion and stories to share, so we hit it off right away. I hope you enjoy my conversation with nate nate welcome to the dtx podcast i've really been looking forward to this one as you know, you know i've spent a little bit of time in big pharma And I think a lot of the discussions that we're going to have during this episode is near and dear to my heart. Please tell our audience who you are, a little bit of your background and how you got to where you got. And don't forget about one small interesting fact about yourself.
1: Thanks for having me here, Eugene. Really excited for this conversation. I am a managing director and partner at the Boston Consulting Group, BCG in our San Diego office. I work broadly in digital health and within that do a lot in digital therapeutics and SAMD. Uh my background is a mix of professional services across consulting firms, startups, life sciences research. I actually did a PhD in microfluidics and pathogen detection coming out of college. Fun fact, I was sitting here reflecting this morning on what would be a fun fact. So an interesting one that probably just leads to more questions and stories that we won't have time for is Technically, I'm in the middle of about nine different children. So if you look at all my siblings, but I have no full-blood brothers or sisters. It's actually across five different marriages through both parents. So you can imagine holidays were interesting, not necessarily fiery, just interesting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a good summary. And indeed, I think this is a very new, interesting fact to this DTX podcast. So (laughs) thank you for sharing that. As we got introduced a number of years back, and I have done work with BCG Digital Ventures side of the house. I have self-described myself as a serial intro and entrepreneur, and I think you have a lot of that background as well. Before we dive into digital therapies and semd uh, just from a perspective, and I'm curious how you're thinking about a large organization spinning up or out a company versus a entrepreneur just coming up with an idea, hacking away at it, and growing that as a business. So I'm curious to see how you're looking at this and contrasting the two.
1: For me, having been on both sides of it, and certainly coming from the corporate side substantially over the last few years, there are very material differences. And it really comes down to value creation, in my mind. How you think about the type of value you want to create, how you think about the speed to value and the associated structures that set those up. And then of course, the different paths offer different pluses and minuses along the way as you are you know, building towards that value. So if we think about the startup side of it, you've got an idea, someone that invests in you is looking to make a return. They have an expectation of timelines, but there's still some level of fuzziness. That return will often come in some form of equity converting to an exit. There's some simplicity in that. And often the investment can be as simple as capital, just money arguably, I think a lot of VCs are developing structures and capabilities to enable their portfolio companies in completely different ways that go beyond that. But that's more of a starting point. On the corporate side, the value creation often isn't as pure play as a return on a check that they invest in a company. There are questions around strategic value. So there's questions of relationship back to their core business. There are questions that are around what the corporation can offer in terms of expertise, capabilities, channel access et cetera, to the companies they spin out. And the value creation equation can actually be quite different. So certainly when there is a corporate venture fund set up in that there is allocated capital that can be invested directly for an ROI, that can look a lot more like what you might see in a startup adventure relationship. When these are innovation groups that are on budget cycles, it's quite a bit different. Budget cycles generally happen on an annual basis. And as you might imagine, that means that every year you got to go back and sort of prove the worth. And often those timelines get compressed versus what you might see in, say, a life sciences fund that's looking for a return over seven years. You could imagine having to prove your worth seven times over in budget cycles often doesn't happen because the executives that maybe greenlit the project to begin with might not necessarily be in the same position seven years down the road. What I often see from a value point of view is that the corporate spin outs or spin ups are required to prove their worth sooner than you might expect in a venture funded startup, which actually changes that product market fit question too. It doesn't make it better or worse. It doesn't mean they're chasing the same dollar faster. They might actually need to chase a different problem in order to show that product market fit and ultimate return more quickly.
0: Back to your earlier comment of standalone versus adjacent to an existing business, those timelines and value creation are also different. And I have to say, I think you and I can probably chat for literally hours just on that topic alone. And maybe I just want to add one other, to some will sound probably as a very contrarian view. To me, a lot of the innovation teams without an actual PL that are purely service organizations are doomed in my opinion, but that's just my two cents on it. You don't have to comment on it.
1: I'd love to comment on that, actually. It's a really interesting question because if they don't have a P&L, effectively, they are fitting under a budget. They are essentially a cost center to the corporate organization. That might be okay if corporate is willing to take a long-term bet and they've allocated in the, some amount of their annual plan that they can't do it for seven years, but two or three, you could imagine that this could play out reasonably well. And these governance structures are actually quite tricky to handle because to your point, the PL structure would be interesting, but they may actually be servicing the core. You can do some sort of transfer pricing agreement back to the core franchise and it can still operate like a PL where where the business is its customer.
0: I think maybe we'll have you on my other podcast called The Shot of Digital Health Therapy, where we can just explore that topic alone with Jim Joyce, my entrepreneur counterpart there. So let's not beat around the bush. As we're talking about startups and spinning things up and out, you know, in one of the previous episodes, I spoke to Justin Norton. He's an investor in some of the digital therapeutic companies. And we talked about pharma or life sciences broadly and lack of consumer customer skills, just coming from very different backgrounds. What does it take to build a team that can take Sam D, a Digital Therapeutic to market? and what are the skills required? Again, while this is not talking about BCG, but I'm just curious, how does that fit into your pictures and offering as well to some of the larger players? First
1: of all, it's a lot more people than I think most corporations realize. When I think about building anything in digital, there's just a core set of capabilities that are required. And usually, multiple capabilities don't sit in the same person. So my designer is probably fundamentally different from my analyst building the business model. Those are two different individuals, their entire headcount. And you don't really get below a floor of, call it five individuals. I mean, that's an incredibly bare minimum. And I'm not suggesting that anyone should be chasing a digital therapeutic build with five people. But even at its most basic level, there is real OPEX attached to any digital team for a corporation. And the expectation should be that once you get started, that that team will only need to grow. That cost goes up over time. Now, in terms of the capabilities required, I see product management at the center. And product management in tech is... Often, I think most of us that work in tech broadly understand what product management is. But the term product manager can often mean something different in the healthcare industry. And I see product managers within tech as those that are able to translate between the needs of the user, which are more design-oriented questions, and the needs of the business, which are more financially-oriented questions. But you need product. You need to be design-led. I think a critical component of design-led, and this relates back to your question on engaging consumers. is what problem are we actually solving? What friction are we going after? I think many of us these days are very used to design thinking approaches, under starting with the user, addressing the needs of the user. Of course, within healthcare, the user is not necessarily the payer. And so you can't just focus on a user's friction. So you actually have to focus on the economic frictions between multiple stakeholders and address both simultaneously. So that often requires a lot of deep functional expertise. When we got going in this, we were doing a lot of real strong design-led thinking and research to get to our product development. And often you end up siloed in an area where you probably are going to solve someone's problem, but maybe not make any money at it. Now, the challenge that can sound a little cold, but the problem with not making money is you don't get to scale. You don't get any impact. The economics have to work out for the thing to stick and for other people to pick it up and for more patients to use it ultimately and for it to have some sort of clinical impact. So I think of making money as a simple term, but ultimately the one that will drive adoption and impact over all of the solution. So product, design, business, obviously engineering. I think on engineering, there's a bit of a debate over how much that needs to be in-house versus outsourced, what capabilities need to be close to home versus further away. Increasingly, data engineering is one that's on my radar. I think people are very mindful of data science, which is more of an analytics exercise, but actually how you connect all the pipes is its own incredibly large challenge and more and more i see pharma companies and corporations broadly running into this issue there's a broad suite of capabilities
0: and notoriously on the data side pharma has been very much in the silo from a data sharing perspective and everything else so i think there's a lot to learn and adopt and as it comes to especially interoperability as well and probably a whole other can of worms what you just described is obviously complex. It's not in the core skill sets typically. There's always brilliant individuals across a lot of these companies. And maybe just a very provocative question then, why build versus when a digital therapeutic slash MD company is generating revenue, has an FDA approval or not, depends on the PDT or not, why not just buy when it's somewhat ready? We see some investment arms do invest into it, but I'm just curious what you guys are seeing and how you're looking at this.
1: It really comes down to what problem you're trying to solve. Back to our value creation question. The pure play DTX companies ultimately are looking to drive clinical outcomes for their patient populations, which may or may not overlap with the patient populations being addressed by a pharmaceutical company. So the first question is, are these the same patients? And second is, are the problems that we're solving you know, of mutual interest? I think a few years ago, I was more enthusiastic about leading with a the build. There was less available on the market solving an individual company's problem really required them to take that on themselves. These days, I am very enthusiastic around the ability to partner and for more partner-led innovation. That's in part due to the amount of capital that has been flowing into the digital health industry and the amount of talent that's been chasing it. There are just awesome solutions out there. There's a lot of good people, a lot of good product. And quite frankly, with venture money drying up, there are new opportunities and new needs for these companies to have capital cash infused. And that creates a ripe environment for partnering. That said, partnering doesn't necessarily mean that you're going all in on the existing product. There is likely still need for build, but it might be in more of like a white label configuration type format. And you may even stitch together multiple solutions, and maybe you get a hardware that's kicking off some sort of remote monitoring data alongside some type of user experience that you configure and brand for your drug platform. This is where I see the innovation going in 2022.
0: Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my clinical and commercial partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald. Who is the chief medical officer and general manager of health excel and as her friends call her doctor no crack let's see what question chandana has for our guest today hi Nate. bcg obviously needs no introduction so opening new doors or selling to clients may not be such a huge challenge to you you can challenge me on that one if i'm wrong but my question is have you seen a difference in perception when you approach a medical pharma client with a digital therapeutics proposition versus say a small time digital therapeutics product builder or company? And if there is a difference, how do you think we can change that?
1: Yes, absolutely. One of the simple ones is pharma tends to be more sensitive when it comes to regulatory and compliance. They are under more scrutiny than med tech and compliance, there's a bit of a bell curve to compliance and pharma tends to be further on one end of that, which just means more eyes on anything you're doing and tighter processes around it. The second one is that I would say med tech companies tend to be more focused on connecting different data systems. They're used to instrumentation or systems sitting with inpatient settings where data access is really critical and they see proprietary data access feeding that into SAMD systems has its own advantages, and pharma companies don't necessarily have that access. It's the broader world of SAMD when you get to medtech versus more of a pure play DTX in pharma. Now, these are, of course, just generalized trends, not necessarily always true. Thank you, Shonda, for the question.
0: And I'm going to actually hop in here because the question that I always come up with, and again, maybe some tire marks on my own back here, but is pharma even a natural owner of a digital therapeutic? It is a medical device after all, especially from the PDT perspective. So would love your thoughts on this. I've been reflecting on this a lot recently.
1: I think the notion of a digital pill is a bit of a misnomer, and I think in some ways, really drove a lot of funding and interest towards pharma when, in fact, I would have liked to see more of it come from the med tech side. I do think from a the processes from a regulatory and product development within Medtech actually fit much more closely with what we need to build in SAMD and DTX. That said, the notion of SAMD paired to drugs, I think is very exciting. I love the idea that we could drive towards outsized clinical outcomes that you might not get through a pill alone. I'm very bullish and optimistic about what we can do in medicine by putting all these things together.
0: I also just been quite a lot reflecting on such topics. And again, back to where is pharma looking at a drug, drug plus? And I heard it somewhere, and I'm going to paraphrase Eddie Martucci, who I think most of the listeners know, CEO of Akili. You once said something like a DTX is like a toy in a kid's meal for pharma, right? You get excited when you get it, and then you kind of just toss it away after eating your meal. Has that changed? And looking at this, billions and billions invested in molecular R&D, but digital R&D still has been lagging behind. And I have a feeling what you're going to say about this, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on this.
1: I don't necessarily see it, I love the analogy, and I think the analogy plays out from the timelines I was talking about earlier. But ultimately, as I was saying, I think it always comes back to value. Pharma companies are really going to need to see some sort of return, and they're going to expect that sooner than you might see from the venture community. There's less patience, in part in the way that the market expects them to respond, and the way executives of pharma companies need to operate. So. Most of the pharma companies that I talk to are still looking into digital. It's not like this is something that happened a few years ago and everyone's walking away. There are consistent and major digital programs and I expect there to continue to be. Still, again, I'm bullish on the opportunity to link all these solutions. It's just gonna take time. It's fun to put bricks in the wall against
0: it. Change is hard and this is a complex industry. We touched on drug, drug plus or standalone versus drug plus. Can we talk a little bit about the differences in go-to-market? As an example, is the drug plus companion to defend pricing? And maybe the first one, meaning standalone, is that even a viable option for pharma until there are significant revenues? I know we touched on that question a little bit earlier, but maybe just contrast the different routes to market.
1: Yeah, it's a really hard question. It's one that, that I see companies wrestling with directly. We have like a really simple chart that we show, which is basically, how do you think about value creation? Are you going to do it on your own? Is it going to drive your core revenue? Now with pharma, that's of course, it could be driving the drug revenue one way or the other, and we need to unpack that a little bit. There's also value in data creation. I think a lot of companies are very enthusiastic about the data created. And just generally, the one that I'm most enthusiastic about it, which you know, back to this is going to take a long time, is the capabilities. You just got to keep pushing against this, developing the muscle. Now, when you think about, for real simplicity, like direct reimbursement versus more drug sales. Now, direct reimbursement, I think even in the pure play startups, is still spotty. It's not like that's totally been unlocked and we have a clear answer. And I think there's still going to be a lot of experimentation. There's going to be a lot of negotiating at the rock face with the payers to sort these kind of things out. The drug plus, there's actually a lot of complexity on this too. We were just speaking recently as a team about this. If you got to be mindful of any notion of anti-kickback, the difference between thinking about new starts on a drug versus supporting access or compliance. These are actually meaningful differences that need to be unpacked. The purest version of this, which I would love to see companies chase more, is actually to embed DTX, SAMD products into their overall clinical development programs early, so no later than early phase two trials, and drive towards clinical outcomes so that you have a label with both of these attached, and then you price against that label and you have more of a unified solution. But that takes a major commitment that isn't just the digital innovation unit. It isn't just the commercial team saying that they want this. It actually goes back to the R&D teams standing this up and completely reinventing their programs. But that's what I think we'll see real change and impact.
0: Love it. And again, we can continue unpacking each one just in much deeper discussions. So we'll make sure you're on the shot one of these days as well. Many of the pharma companies or broadly life sciences organizations also have consumer arms, right? So what are you guys tracking broadly Because again, some of the development, yes, the margins are higher in the pharma side of the business where it's much lower margins in the consumer arms. However, the testing, the adoption might be easier. Are you seeing any kind of direct-to-consumer models being explored by, again, broadly speaking, these pharmaceutical giants?
1: We poke on this occasionally as we dig into some of these programs and saying, okay, well, let's do more of a DTC-oriented acquisition approach. We've got internal capabilities in growth marketing, performance marketing that will deploy on a lot of these. I would say more often than not, the consumer-oriented approaches don't actually return the same level of conversion as one that has more of a clinical orientation. In general, we've moved away from this orientation. Now that said, back to the capabilities consumer engagement is critical as a broader capability. And I would say that's true even outside of DTX, just when you think about, you know, marketing associated with pharma and medtech, it's a capability where there's a lot more headroom in the industry. But in terms of DTX and SAMD, it's not one that I'm personally, am pushing on with the companies I work with and not one that I've seen the companies I'm working with pushing in, in a lot of depth right now.
0: We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Nate Baer, managing director and partner of BCG Healthcare. We keep talking about digital therapies and being in literally the hands of the patients and health consumers. And I think one of the challenging components of all of this is how does that fit into a workflow? And one of our key partners here on the podcast is Amalgam RX, which has acquired a clinical decision support company. And obviously being at that pop point of prescription, for lack of a better term, I do believe that clinical decision support is a key component of scaling digital therapies. Your thoughts on this?
1: Yes, my thoughts are full agreement. It's funny that you mentioned them. I caught up with Chris last Friday at Amalgam, and you reminded me I'm going to lunch with Noah today from Avada that they acquired. Uh, so know them all really well and uh, really supportive of the notion that CDS should be embedded into these broader workflows. Back to the notion of how do you stick all the pieces together to get greater outcomes? And also the notion that part of the value is the data that comes off these systems. I think we've got a lot of room to play when it comes to more advanced clinical decision support. Even now, there are simple kind of if-then, Boolean rule-based statements that drive CDS systems. It's not necessarily at this sort of learning AI that's constantly dynamic and adapting in the system, in part because of some of the regulatory challenges. But then beyond just the technical aspects of this, we need to think of these as more unified systems where it's what happens at the point of care. It's what happens at home. How do they link? How do the data systems communicate with one another? There may even be other stakeholders in the mix, whether we're talking about remote workers, where they may not have much time dropping into a patient's home. They need to be better informed. CDS, in my mind, is more about elevating the right information so that actions can be taken. Because the amount of data that's kicking off one individual and that will be kicking off one individual, as we have more sensors, more tests for biomarkers, it's just going to be way more than any individual can consume. CDS is going to be critical in order to optimize these care pathways when more people start getting involved.
0: So let's look at a little bit of the commercial traction. So we kind of talked in the broader terms of Is Pharma the right owner for DTX, the complexities around it? There's lots of activities that are going on. Just curious what you see across your client base, without any specifics, just broadly in the spin up, spin-outs category, and where are you seeing the most traction commercially? I see the most traction, not necessarily in pure play, but
1: where there is some sort of natural adjacency and a need in the market. Now I was reflecting on this, and you brought up amalgam. I think what they've done with Novo with iSage is really interesting. I mean, that's been a relatively you know long-term partnership, and you know, think about insulin titration as a need for their patients that is adjacent to what they're servicing at the offering therapies. Now, that's a really interesting one. It's not necessarily how do I get direct reimbursement for this platform. It's not necessarily how do I serve as a pure companion app that's going to drive more sales but it solves this adjacency and that natural partnership fits and this is an interesting play this is how do you think about meeting a treatment need with a dtx or samd that just helps service the community that i'm already addressing you can see some stickiness that persists over time
0: what would your advice be to the pharma execs that are out there and listening to this podcast i think most of them hopefully are
1: My advice is to continue to push, to continue to focus on clinical outcomes, take the long view on clinical outcomes. I would love to see someone navigate towards completely reshaping a development program, as I mentioned, and really stitch together more of a unified solution. I really believe in the outsized impact. That these solutions can have when brought together. But it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time. And as an industry, I think we all have to keep pushing. And then within that, to do that effectively, really look to the broader ecosystem. There are so many great solutions out there. Don't necessarily think of innovation as a conference room sport. Innovation is something that really requires active engagement with people that are at the tip of the spear. So stay out there, stay engaged, partner, build, white label, But just keep it moving forward.
0: I love the term conference room sport. I'll give you credit when I start using it now. So absolutely. We started with you, Nate, and would love to end with you. What makes you get up in the morning aside from podcast recording?
1: As we're saying, there's a lot of work to be done and it's interesting, it's fun, and it's great to be part of the long-term solution. It's nice to be able to say, hey, you know, I was part of this industry that we all know is changing the world. And so the wins can be small on a daily basis, but at the end of the day, we get to look back over time and really see an industry change. And from the BCG perspective, What was really fun and interesting is getting to work across so many different solutions and with so many different corporations. And also as we're bringing in partners, so many different startups across SAMD and health tech more broadly. So there's just a lot of interesting, smart, exciting people along the way too. So frankly, all that's a lot of fun and it's something I can be proud of every day.
0: Awesome. And I'll just echo your famous saying. Slow progress is still progress. So I think all rewind back, there will be an impact to the lives of many, many patients and health consumers. Nate, thank you very much for being here, being here early and committed, and thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. Thanks, Eugene. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, a production of Mission Based Media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach help or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borovic and catch you next time.